Welcome to A Hard Look, the Administrative Law Review podcast from the Washington College of Law. We'll discuss how administrative law impacts your daily life, from regulatory actions by agencies and the litigation over them to the balance of power among branches of the government. This is A Hard Look. Hi everyone, welcome to Administrative Law Review's A Hard Look. My name is Robin Schoenger and I will be filling in for Sarah Knarzer as host today. I'm a third year law student at American University Washington College of Law and this year's editor for online publications at Administrative Law Review. On this episode, we're going to talk about the Americans with Disabilities Act, which turns 30 this year. I am delighted to introduce our two guests for this episode, Professor Brandi Wagstaff and American University Washington College of Law Dean. Bob Dinnerstein. Professor Wagstaff is currently serving as legal counsel for litigation in the Criminal Section's Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit at the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. In this capacity, she provides legal and strategic analysis in support of HTPU-led enforcement activities and initiatives. Prior to joining the HTPU, Ms. Wagstaff served for seven years as an attorney with the Civil Rights Division's Disability Rights Section, where she engaged in litigation and developed regulations to enforce the Americans with Disabilities Act. While Ms. Wagstaff works at the DOJ and has worked to enforce the Americans with Disabilities Act in that capacity, she is speaking in her private capacity here today and as a professor of disability law. The views she shares here today are hers alone. Ms. Wagstaff is also an adjunct professor who teaches courses in legal writing, appellate advocacy, disability law, and civil rights at George Mason University School of Law. She received her JD from GMU and served as a judicial clerk to the Honorable Alan Kay on the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. For more information, please look her up on LinkedIn, which can be found in our episode notes. And Dean Bob Dinnerstein is acting Dean, Professor of Law, and Director of the Disability Rights Law Clinic at American University, Washington College of Law, where he has taught since 1983. Prior to coming to WCL, he was an attorney for five years at the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division Special Litigation Section, where, among other things, he litigated cases concerning conditions in state institutions for people with intellectual disabilities, psychosocial disabilities, and juveniles. In the area of disability rights, his published work and presentations have focused on issues of consent, supportive decision-making, deinstitutionalization of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, the American with Disabilities Act, and the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. He has an AB degree from Cornell University and a JD degree from Yale Law School. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Hello, thank you. Yes, hello. So Professor Wagstaff and Dean Dunnerstein, I'm so excited to be talking with you both today in celebration of the ADA. So I wanted to start by just asking you a quick question. In your opinions, why is it important to celebrate the ADA? One of the reasons that I think it's important to celebrate the ADA is to see how far we've come in the last 30 years. And I think an important part of that is to reflect on the development of the ADA in the first place. So one of the things that I always like to show my students at the beginning of the semester of my disability law class is a, is a video. Um, it's called 
Lives Worth Living, The Great Fight for Disability Rights. So it's a film by Eric Newdell, and it was developed in 2011. Um, so that was, you know, almost 10 years ago. And I think one of the important things to highlight in kind of reflecting on the past 30 years is to see the development, how we got to the ADA in the first place. So this film is really, I think, a unique opportunity for people, especially younger people, newer generations, to see how the fight for disability rights evolved and how that led to the passage of the ADA back in 1990. So I think it's always important in celebrating an anniversary is to not only look at what's happened since the enactment of that law, but what led to the development of that law? What led to the disability rights movement and how did that develop in terms of the passage of the law and the people that fought for the rights and for these laws? And I think that's an important thing to think about at the 30th anniversary. Definitely. So before we get started in our conversation, I want to ask a very basic question for anyone listening that wants more information. What exactly is the ADA? Uh, well, the ADA, or the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, is a law that was passed in 1990, so that's why we're celebrating its 30th anniversary. And maybe the best way to think about it is it is built on the uh, two, two predecessor laws, essentially. The content of the ADA is, really draws quite a bit from Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which was passed in 1973. The structure of the ADA and the various titles actually draws from the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which banned discrimination on the basis of race, gender, and ethnicity. And the reason uh, the ADA was needed was that as important as Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act was as a uh, law protecting the rights of people with disabilities, it only addressed the rights of people who were in programs that were receiving federal financial assistance or in the federal government itself. It did not address discrimination in the private sector. So by the end of the uh, 1980s and beginning of 1990s, Congress, uh, with the support of the executive, recognized that there was a huge gap in the legal protection of the rights of people with disabilities. And as, uh, as Brandy just indicated, it was not only uh, an understanding on the part of uh, lawyers and legislators, but also, very importantly, people with disabilities and their allies who uh, were a very active movement in getting the ADA passed. So the ADA covers a wide range of activities in our daily lives. So employment in Title I, the activities of state and local governments under Title II, uh, the actions of pub so-called public accommodations in Title III, communication under Title IV, and then various other aspects of life in Title V. And I should also mention transportation in Titles II and III. So while it doesn't cover absolutely everything, including, by the way, the activities of the federal government, it does cover quite a bit of areas of life. And as a consequence, has brought into, under the umbrella of civil rights protection, parts of society that before then had not been included. Thank you for explaining that, Dean Dunnerstein. So reflecting back on the last 30 years, what do you believe the ADA has succeeded at? What are some tangible things that we have today that we can thank the ADA for? So some of the, the things that I always like to highlight are the things that many of us actually notice in our day-to-day -day lives. So 
there are many architectural access that that uh, allow individuals um, to access places of public accommodations like restaurants, doctor's office, retail stores, movie theaters that we all notice. They could be from the automatic door openings to ramps um, to the um, individual accessible features in restrooms. All of us notice that and many of us use those features as well. Another important one um, is to try to get people now to imagine what life was like before curb cuts. All of us use curb cuts, not just to people with disabilities, which allows them to be, um, you know, be able to um, get around so much easier in life and around cities, around towns, etc. But so many of us, you know, we got our rolling luggage, we got our baby strollers, like how many of us use those? So these are things that, that we all notice, we all see, we all use. Some other examples of, of, of features that the ADA has, has brought to the public, you know, include things like the effective communication requirements. That includes like, Features such as uh, closed captioning and audio description for TVs and movies. Uh, it may include such features as uh, tactile signage for people with vision impairments, sensory warnings when alarms go off. You like if you see a, a fire alarm, if you hear a fire alarm go off, you also see the corresponding uh, lights flashing. Uh, those are things, those are features of the ADA that, that many of us, um, you know, just come across in our day-to-day life and maybe take for granted. Other things include things like service animals. Um, we've seen a lot of individuals with their service animals um, and now we have a better understanding of why these animals are necessary and why we may see them in places like restaurants and retail shops. And then um, one of the most important things is that more people with disabilities now live in communities instead of institutionalized settings. And I think that's an important aspect for us to really reflect on and acknowledge, but also realize that um, you know, there's still more work to do in that area, but we do see less of these institutionalized settings and more of community-based settings and community integration for people uh, with disabilities. Uh, Professor Dinnerstein, did you have anything to add to that? And excuse me, I mean, Dean Dinnerstein, I've known him as Professor Dinnerstein for so long. <laughs> you can even call me Bob if that would work. Um, no, I mean, you make, you know, the, uh, the wonderful point about, about curb cuts and, and what that is uh, an indication of sort of is a broader issue is the kinds of adaptations that we need to make in society to include people with disabilities. Um, we, for built, the built environment, for buildings that exist, for, for structures that exist, for attitudes that exist, we talk about in the ADA reasonable modification or reasonable accommodation. How do you adapt the workplace or adapt a program to meet the needs of people with disabilities? But a broader concept is one of universal design, and that is to think in the beginning of structuring society in a way so that all people are included. So the curb cuts is a great example. If we had curbs without curb cuts and had to put curb cuts in, which is what we did back then, um, that is something to make a, a sidewalk accessible. But if we were building a new area of a town and we're starting with, with uh, curbs, we would include the curb cuts at the beginning, which has two elements to it. One, it's always less expensive to be able to think at the beginning of structuring something. And two, it says something very important in a, in a uh, 
almost symbolic sense, which is that our society includes people with disabilities. So when we're thinking about any kind of program, and this could be anything from a new software application to a physical structure to voting access, we should always be thinking that in our community are a group of uh, people with uh, disabilities. And of course, that term itself reflects many, many different kinds of conditions. So uh, there's definitely a um, not the case of one size fits all, even within the group of people with disabilities. So the law has had a really important uh, both actual legal effect in terms of things that the law regulates, but also the symbolic aspect of it, that we now think about disability rights as part and parcel of the civil rights that, that we hold dear in this country. Yes, that's definitely important to point out. And so the ADA for sure has accomplished a lot, but I have to ask the inverse of that. Where do you believe the ADA has been unsuccessful? Um, so I might say where it's been less than ho hoped for, perhaps. Um, mm -hmm. And one area, for example, um, I mentioned earlier employment. Uh, I think the hope was that with the passage of the ADA and Title I of the ADA, uh, there would be a real increase in the employment of people with disabilities. Historically, people with disabilities uh, very underemployed compared to people of comparable training who don't have disabilities. And the data actually has not shown that, that the uh, people, there aren't so many more people employed as a percentage of the workforce now, uh, and even pre-pandemic before everything kind of uh, went kerflui. Uh, those those um, those gaps maintain and in, in, uh, in a way that we thought uh, you know might have been addressed. Now some blame the ADA for this. I, I don't, but I think it's fair to say that there was expectation that once you removed barriers, that there would be more employment, and that has not happened as much. I think there are reasons for that. I think some have to do with the fact that. Uh, some earlier Supreme Court cases in the late 90s, which limited the applicability of the ADA, the Sutton case and the Toyota case in particular, uh, made it more difficult to use the ADA as a, um, as a lever to increase employment. The second aspect is it is very hard if someone applies for a job and doesn't get it and you have a disability to prove that you would have gotten the job but for discrimination. There aren't gonna be that many employers, thankfully, who are gonna to say to an applicant, well, I would have hired you, but you're in a wheelchair, so I can't, right? I mean, when you have something like that, it's pretty blatant, but it's a lot harder when it's, when it's more subtle or when you have a non-obvious disability that the person is responding to. So I think there's more work to be done uh, with respect to that. Uh, I think a second area, uh, when the ADA was passed in 1990, uh, Al Gore hadn't yet invented it, uh, the internet rather. Um, of course, I'm being, being a little facetious, but in fact, the internet, although it was in existence, was not in wide circulation as it is now. As a consequence, um, in particular in Title III of the ADA, which re uh, relates to public accommodations, the ADA did not specifically cover the internet. And because of the nature of public accommodations, which are things like access to movie theaters and restaurants and doctor's offices, and they focus on the physical space, the question has become, well, what about the internet, which doesn't have a physical presence, but is everywhere? Uh, and there have been efforts to try to regulate the, uh, the internet under the ADA. Many of them have been successful, but they've been in a less than clear way because the statute does not address this. So the uh, Justice Department had proposed regulations near the end of the Obama administration. Uh, those were not finalized and then were put on hold in the Trump administration. There have been various court cases, but most of those have been settled by consent decrees, so they don't have the same presidential value that others might. Um, it is certainly possible for Congress to amend the ADA 
But I think many advocates worry that once you open up the ADA for amendment, you could be opening it up for um, uh, uh, amendments that might not be as helpful. So it remains something uh, that is open. And because of that, it leads to a certain um, uh, uh, ambiguity about the ADA uh, that, with respect to the internet. And given the importance of the internet and the digital and virtual world, especially now, uh, that's an important uh, gap to fill. So those are just two things that I think that, that, that I've seen. But Brandy, you may, may have some other thoughts as well. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to um, piggyback on is uh, Dean Dinnerstein's comments about the employment um, and how, how we haven't seen those numbers increase as much as we expected. And I think the important thing to note is the ADA only gets us so far. So employment for people with disabilities isn't just about individuals who need accommodations to perform their jobs. Um, it's also about the people who want to find work but can't, can't find work that is suitable for uh, their uh, needs and abilities, or people who qualify for disability benefits but want to work instead, and being able to work instead means losing some of those benefits that they really rely on. And so it oftentimes puts people with disabilities in this catch-22, uh, but I think that that the ADA can only take us so far with employment, and I think there are many aspects um, to the lives of people with disabilities that need to be addressed, um, community supports, um, insurance benefits, things like that, that would allow them to more easily find employment and secure employment. And so there are some structural things going on that, that keep them from even getting to the ability to apply for employment in the first place um, that I think need to be addressed and aid the ADA may not necessarily be the vehicle with which to do that. Uh, but it is something for us to keep in mind that the ADA can only take us so far. You know, it's, it's uh, also just so interesting because uh, pre-pandemic, uh, if there was a, uh, one of the accommodations that sometimes people with disabilities asked for was to be able to, to uh, telework, telecommunicate, uh, because of maybe limitations that their disabilities caused. And the case law was sort of mixed about whether that was a legitimate accommodation. It depended a lot on what the nature of the job was and what the employee was expected to do. But what might have looked almost impossible or difficult somehow becomes easier or at least necessary when we're in the environment we're in now. So one of the things that I think will be interesting to see when we are past the pandemic is whether there will be greater flexibility in understanding what it means to work in a workplace and to maybe make it easier for telework. Now, we should be careful. I, For me, at least, I don't want telework to become a way of isolating people with disabilities even more who are working but not in the workplace. But on the other hand, there are people because of either their own limitations or more commonly because of other problems like inadequate transportation or not having personal assistance that would help people get to the workplace, uh, would be able to be um, fully uh, uh, contributing members to society. And, and you know, Brandy makes another really good point, which is I th when I talk to people with disabilities, um, it's very important to have uh, disability insurance, social security disability, and supplemental security income for those who really can't work. But if you talk to a lot of people with disabilities, what they really want to do is to work. They, they understand the importance of work just as everyone else does. And so rather than, we may not be doing them a great service by making it either too easy to get benefits and not stay in the workplace, or as Brandy was saying, requiring them to choose between getting benefits or going into a, a job where they may not have steady insurance. So this also relates back to the ability to have 
health insurance and covering of pre-existing conditions and other aspects which go beyond disability law, but which are important if we really care about having people with disabilities in the workforce. Thank you, Dean Dunnerstein and Professor Wagstaff. Those are some very helpful observations and insights on the ADA. And to shift gears a bit, I know the two of you have made careers out of working in disability law. What is it like to practice with the ADA? Well, um, it's, I think it's a terrific area of law, and, and I'm, I'm guessing Brandy agrees, for, for really two reasons. One, just at the technical level, it's, it's complicated law, and, it, and, and um, it's administratively complicated, which I think is appropriate given uh, the, the group for which we're doing this podcast, right? There's, it's heavily regulatory, it's, it's heavily statutory, um, it requires really good technical skills of, that good lawyers have. Uh, and linked to a group of clients, and again, the clients are, are, are certainly uh, a varied group, who, um, because they've been on the outside for so long, in my experience, um, they are extraordinarily appreciative of the work that one does on their behalf. In particular, in representing clients with disabilities, if one can do it in a way that is not paternalistic, that does not feel sorry for them, does not see them as you know somehow... Uh, people to, uh, again, to be concerned about, but as rights-bearing citizens who are entitled to the various things they're asking for, of course, in a, in a legitimate case, uh, just as everyone else is. So for my money, the combination of passion that it in- generates, the technical skills that it requires, and the payoff of knowing that you're working on behalf of a group that historically has been marginalized, um, you know, I can think of really no better area uh, to practice law in. Yes, and I would echo everything that Dean Dennerstein says, especially the aspect of working in disability law. Such complex, varied, and challenging law to uh, to enforce. Um, the thing about the ADA is it touches on every aspect of life that you can think of, and it's hard to think of any other um, law that really just has such broad implications in every aspect of life like that. Um, And I think one of the important things and the thing that I found most rewarding in working um, in this area of law is the regulations. And, you know, this this is an appropriate time to talk about some of the the regulatory aspects of it. But the meat, the meat of the ADA is really in the regulations itself. And so it really is important, you know, the work that the Department of Justice does to develop, to revise and to enforce those regulations um, in Title II and Title III, the ADA is important. And likewise, the EEOC, who has responsibility for uh, developing and revising regulations uh, for Title I, like those are such an important aspect of the enforcement and development of the ADA. And an aspect that many of us especially lawyers sometimes forget about. We're used to going to the statute. What does the statute say? Um, So I'm always reminding my students, go to the regs, it's in the regs, the meat of it is in the regs. And so that has been a rewarding aspect of my career in disability rights laws, having had the pleasure and the privilege of being able to work on these regulatory developments and to be able to really hear what is needed in terms of like the evolution of the law, because that's a really important thing. The law often remains static. I mean, although the ADA was revised, um, amended in 2008 to um, address some of those narrowing Supreme Court opinions that Dean Dennerstein referenced earlier, 
Um, it's very rare that we will see amendments to the law, right? It's very rare that we can get, you know, Congress in agreement to pass any law these days. Um, so what what really happens is we look to the regulatory aspect of the ADA to see how the law is going to evolve and change over time. Didn't Dennerstein mention the proposed regulations that had come about um, with respect to uh, website accessibility or web accessibility? And, and that's, that's an important aspect of the... Um, of the regulatory um, needs uh, that that you see that because the statute itself hasn't really clearly addressed that. Um, I, I had a grand old time being able to work on the regulatory um, development of the new uh, movie captioning and audio description regulations. Um, those are regulations that we couldn't have had 30 years ago because the the technology wasn't there to provide individuals with those um, accessibility uh, benefits. So being able to go to a movie and use devices so that you can be able to see the captioning um, if you're an individual with a hearing disability or have the ability to hear the audio description if you're an uh, individual with a vision disability. And so that was that was great fun to work on those. And then just to see, you know, those things come to fruition and having those um, features for individuals to be able to go out and enjoy movies um, just like with their family, with their friends, just as equally as they could because of those new regulations. Of course, sadly, many of us are not able to go out and enjoy any movies these days. Um, but as you'll notice, like all those features are available when you, you know, stream those movies on Netflix, on Hulu, on Amazon Prime, you now have the ability to turn on captioning and some of them um, offer audio description as well. And, and those are really fun features um, to see that the technology has allowed for us to do that now. And that's not something that um, would have happened 30 years ago. And again, that kind of stresses some of the importances of the regulatory aspect of the law and how that can develop and move and change with the development and the, of life and society and the way we do things and the way we, we uh, interact with the world. And Professor Wagstaff, you mentioned your students earlier. Could you and Dean Dinnerstein talk a little bit about what it's like to teach disability law and ADA to law students? Yeah, I think... Um, uh, at my school, um, at George Mason, where a lot of these kind of civil rights related classes aren't offered as robustly as they are at some of the other local law schools, students are thirsty for knowledge on different civil rights laws. And so there's always been a lot of interest in the disability law class that I started teaching over a decade ago. And I just love the excitement and the passion of the, passion of the students to um, learn about these laws and to see the little light light bulbs go off and to always have them come back to me after the class to be like, I see the world so differently now. I walk around the world so differently. I notice these things I never would have noticed before. Um, so that's really rewarding. And uh, one of the other things is just the opportunity to work with students, um, to work with them one-on-one, -on -one, help them develop their interests, help them develop their paper topics. 
um, help them find an area that they're really passionate about, interested in, and then giving them advice on, you know, if this is an area of law that they want to get into, how they can, um, you know, kind of start developing that interest and that experience. Um, so I've, you know, just love the whole mentoring aspect of teaching and really excited when students are excited about the subject matter, especially. And I really see that a lot in my disability law class. And that's, that's particularly rewarding. Yeah, I, I, uh, I would agree. Um, maybe a little differently. I think we have a lot of students at WCL who are very interested in civil rights and human rights um, issues. So disability rights fits right with that. Um, one thing I enjoy about it, uh, I always supplement my main course materials with magazine and newspaper articles. There is not a week that goes by, and I might say a day that doesn't go by, where there aren't some really relevant articles in the press about disability, and I always encourage students to you know, let me know as well, and we make that available. Uh, I, you know, It's a three-credit course when I teach my seminar. It could be a 10-credit course based on the level of um, information that's out there. And it's, there's, you know, of course, the best issues to teach about are ones that are not so straightforward. So getting a sense of, well, what's, what's a disability rights perspective on a particular issue, but also trying to push people to not just jump to what they may think of as the, the most uh, appealing argument to make. Uh, I always say to students, I have very clear positions and points of view about disability rights, and I'm not going to pretend I don't have them, but I can tell you I will be hardest on people who I think agree with me because I want you to be good lawyers. And to be good lawyers, you have to recognize that you're going to be you know, up against situations where people are, of course, arguing the other side. And there can be a tendency when you're doing disability rights to think, well, I've got, I'm on the side of the angels. Everyone's going to embrace me. And it's not the way that, that works. In the clinic, of course, there's the added uh, reward as a teacher that you get from training people who are working with people with disabilities in handling cases, some of whom then go on into that area of practice afterwards. And from a teacher's standpoint, there's nothing better than to find somebody who you know, goes into the area of law in which you practice and later says, oh, you know, you changed the direction of where I was headed because I really enjoyed the class or I enjoyed the clinic that I was in. And, and uh, uh, happily, we don't tend to hear from those who say, you really turned me off to that. I'll never go into it again. Uh, but uh, I really enjoy that. I have a number of former students who our DOJ in the disability rights section or in working um, in a protection and advocacy organization around the country. And it's a great network of, of people and it's wonderful to be, to be part of that. So speaking of journeys, how did the two of you make your way into the disability law space? How many hours uh, uh, do you have? <laughs> <laughs> um, so for me, um, and, and you know, going through it, and, and this is maybe for some of our listeners, it looks a little different in the, the rearview mirror than it did at the time, but I would say that for me, uh, a really important influence uh, was that when I was in law school, I did a clinical program. We were representing clients who uh, the state was seeking to civilly commit to a psychiatric hospital. And I found those cases fascinating. I found the clients fascinating. I found the issues interesting. Uh, I did it for the course of, I was able to actually work one way or another in that clinic for uh, like the last two and a half years of law school. So I really, that really kind of made me interested. And then my first job out of law school was to work in the civil rights division in the special litigation section. At that time, we didn't have the ADA and we didn't have the disability rights section, but my section was the one that did the disability rights. And again, I found the areas of terrific interest. The DOJ was a terrific place to work, especially 
or an entry lawyer because you get a lot of responsibility way before you probably can handle it. Um, and, uh, and it was a great teaching and learning experience in addition to, to the content. And as you noted at the beginning, my work in particular was with rights of people with, in, in institutions. And those cases still, uh, you know, 35, 40 years later are very vivid in my mind. And then lastly, I have a younger sister with intellectual disability uh, who lives in a group home in New York State. Um, we're very close. Uh, I speak with her, you know, three times a week. Um, and even though I didn't go into law to because of the issues, the legal issues affecting her, I'm sure it had some uh, some effect on that. And I always uh, find myself, um, uh, you know, when I speak to her about some of these issues. Um, I always get a perspective that's a little different from what I might have anticipated, which I appreciate. So that's a shortish version of my journey. I had started my career in the Civil Rights Division over 22 years ago um, as a paralegal in the Civil Rights Division's appellate section. And I had the opportunity very early on in my career working as a paralegal, to work on some of the most important Supreme Court and Court of Appeals cases involving the interpretation of the ADA. I can remember distinctly the day the Sutton Trilogy came down from the Supreme Court and all of us gathering in the uh, conference room to like sadly talk about the the outcome of those, those cases. And then later on when the Toyota manufacturing case came out as well. And I remember um, working on um, helping our attorneys put together an appendix for a Supreme Court brief uh, regarding the um, reach of Title I of the ADA to uh, private individuals. Um, And I remember then going to that argument and watching it um, and at the Supreme Court and having Justice Breyer ask questions based on the appendix that I put together (laughs) for that brief, which he ultimately ended up citing in in his dissent. but I just that was really impactful as as a you know young twenty something uh, individual, and so the opportunity to just work on those cases very early in my career, even just as a paralegal, um, was really made an impact. And and I um, I knew that once I went to law school and graduated from law school, that I I did want to come back and and work at the Department of Justice as an attorney, and I really wanted to start my career in the disability rights field, and then as um, as a law student, I became a big admin law nerd. And I also knew that there was a component of um, the disability rights section that worked on regulatory um, and, and policy aspects of, of ADA. And I, um, so when I got hired um, back as an honors attorney after uh, completing my clerkship, uh, this was an, uh, such an unusual request that people looked at me like I was crazy because most young attorneys, I wasn't that young, I went to law school a little bit later, but most young attorneys want to go in and be litigators. And when I was chosen, they told me I was selected for the disability rights section because that was my first choice. I remember um, the looks on their faces when I said, I would really love the opportunity to work in the regulatory unit. And they're like, (laughs) looking at me like I'm crazy, like what? I thought you wanted to do litigation. So um, they did assign me to the regulatory unit and, I had a lot of fun doing that for for almost seven years. 
Um, but lastly, one of the things that, that has always kind of like really kept my interest in these issues going is the fact that I have a, a 30 year old daughter who has, um, who has uh, disabilities that have, um, that we've been dealing with since since her childhood and um and and how that's impacted her life and how that's impacted my view of the world and my view of disability rights law just having that kind of close at home connection that that Dean Dinnerstein um you know also speaks of having as well uh, you know Brandy you mentioned uh, reading the Sutton trilogy it's also the same day that Olmsted was decided uh, which is you know kind of interesting and Olmstead being a very major uh, ADA case about uh, people living in the community and not being in institutions. So, um, uh, yeah, those and and uh, we also I'm, I've made it a point to try to go to the Supreme Court arguments for every ADA case, and I more or less have made it to everyone, and that's always a fascinating thing. And of course, something that you can do in Washington D.C., uh, yes. which you know you can't do at some wonderful law schools outside. So uh, when they have oral arguments in person again, and if the ADA is before them, it'll be definitely something we'll continue to do. Yeah, absolutely. It's always so much fun. I made that just in all the cases I, I worked on, made always like at least one or two trips to the Supreme Court a year to be able to watch those arguments. So that that's something fun that, that area law students really uh, should uh, take advantage of because it's a unique experience that you're not going to get anywhere else. And you may have also heard there are some other changes going on in Washington as of recently. Uh, Only a few weeks ago, the country elected Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So Dean Dinnerstein, what effect do you think a Biden administration would have on the ADA? Well, um, my first point, I guess, would be it kind of depends on what happens in Georgia, uh, because uh, in terms of legislative activity, if the Democrats or Republicans are in charge, might make a difference. uh, you know, Joe Biden's uh, campaign had a pretty detailed uh, policy about disability rights, uh, which you can actually still find on on their website. And and among other things, in addition to committing to uh, uh, robust enforcement of the ADA, um, uh, he's proposed uh, bringing back a disability advisor within the Domestic Policy Council of the White House, which was a position that was uh, available under the Obama administration, but not after that. Also um, filling the a, a State Department uh, disability advisor position that Judy Human had in the Obama administration. So those are some things that, of course, he can do uh, uh, just in, in, with his, within the executive power that he has. Uh, I think he is in support of some additional statutory uh, developments, including the uh, Disability Integration Act, uh, uh, which is uh, an essentially an extension of the ADA to deal with some of the barriers to employment that we discussed earlier, in particular, the availability of long-term uh, services and supports. Uh, so I th- and, and then I think also, uh, uh, re, um, uh, let's say, recommitting to robust enforcement of the Olmstead ma- uh, case, both with respect to institutions and in a somewhat broader way that, uh, uh, for example, during the Obama administration, Olmstead was used to address the issue of sheltered workshops. There's been discussion in the literature about it being used to address issues of guardianship, voting and other areas of daily life that may be affected by um, overly um, uh, protective or, or discriminatory practices. So I think there's there's some very positive uh, possibilities uh, with the Biden-Harris administration uh, in the area of disability rights. And of course, we are still trying to manage the coronavirus. Professor Wagstaff, you recently published an article 
with the regulatory review. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, the article is called The ADA Telework in the Post-Pandemic Workplace. And, you know, just aside from the the significant increase in um, all of us teleworking, just as an aside, you know, it also has um, allowed um, the increased ability to attend classes remotely, schedule telehealth visits, engage in online um, social opportunities, order prescriptions and groceries delivered to your door. Like these are... These are things that individuals with disabilities are now like widely accommodated in ways that previously seemed impossible. Like these everyday things that all of us are engaging in uh, because of the pandemic are are things that were needed um, for a large portion of the population with disabilities. Um, So many people are holding out hope that this more accessible society remains when the pandemic subsides. And in particular, telework is a reasonable accommodation, which Professor Dinnerstein touched on earlier. So one of the things that um, my article touches on is that despite the EEOC's recognition that telework is a reasonable accommodation in many instances, employees seeking this accommodation in court have had mixed results with uh, about 70% siding with the employer versus the employee. Um, and so I thought this would be a great time post-pandemic to um, have the EEOC clarify that um, this really is a reasonable accommodation and having the evidence of employers being able to accommodate employees in this way during the pandemic is now strong evidence of the fact that it is reasonable and is um, less likely to be an undue hardship for employees. So um, it's a quick little um, essay on the Regulatory Reviews website. So if you guys are interested, I uh, highly suggest checking it out. And um, this is just a, a just a quick aside. Uh, this was actually an opportunity for me to work with a student from my disability law class. Um, so he's the one that put me in touch with um, the editor um, and asked me if I wanted to submit. Uh, and she reached out and asked me if I wanted to submit an article for the ADA anniversary. And I said yes. And I reached out to the student, not even knowing that he was the one that brought um, brought uh, my attention or her attention to me as a potential author um, and so I reached out to him to ask me if he wanted to you know help out with uh, with the research and drafting of this and so that was just a nice little synergy there and you know kind of a small world thing in the in disability rights field and it was fun to be able to work with a student on this and that's just another opportunity um, that I really relish is the opportunity to kind of um, do this like academic these academic exercises with uh, students um, to help help them and their development and their passions as well. This has been excellent. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure. Listeners, please check out the episode notes for the bios for our two guests, information about WCL's Disability Law Clinic, the film mentioned by Professor Wagstaff, as well as her article in the Regulatory Review. We would also like to extend a big thank you to the ABA Administrative Law Section, ALR's Executive Board and Staffers, Sharon Wolf, Professor Jill Olmstead, and Professor Andy Popper. Lastly, thank you to Shabir Hamid for editing this episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the ALR website, and wherever you get your podcasts. We would also appreciate it if you could like, rate, and subscribe. If you would like to be a guest on the episode, or if you have any questions or comments, please email them to Sarah at 
alr-sr-tech-editor at wcl.american.edu. The email will also be in the episode notes, along with any links referenced in this episode. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Robin, and this has been A Hard Look. Thank you.